good evening. Glad you're back with us for our, can you believe that you have hung through eight sessions of Politically Incorrect? And I think we've talked about every hot topic in the political world except one. And so we'll do that in this lesson. So let me say a prayer for us. If you're coming in, just relax, just find a seat, uh, very casual. Let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for this time we get to come together. Thank you for every family that's represented here, every person, every faithful follower. I pray that you would help us to engage our minds as we struggle with how to live out our faith in a true way and with compassion. I pray that you would give us uh, wisdom. pray that you would be with us. I also lift up all the needs in this room. Father, there are many things that we don't talk about, but you know everyone's need, and I pray that you would be at that point of need for encouragement, for sustaining. Father, we know that you can see the future, and we know that you work in all things for good, and we trust you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as usual, text your questions during class. We'll answer as many of those as, we, uh, as we're able to. We have been working through Politically Incorrect, taking this opportunity, this season in our country's electoral cycle, to talk about helping to shape our views of all the issues in our culture in a biblical way. And I think we found that regardless of where you are on the spectrum of political beliefs, the Bible is going to challenge all of us at some points and bring us on a trajectory to be, as Romans 8.29 says, basically conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's our goal. And that's God's destiny for us. That's what we've been doing next week. Just for those of you that are here, we'll tweet this out and try to get it out in the media as, uh, as well. But we don't have any Wednesday night programming next week. It, it's literally fall break for all of the schools in that time period. And we've just learned our lesson that we take that Wednesday night off. We have a lot of our volunteers are gone out of town. So no Wednesday night programming at all next week. The following Wednesday, so two weeks from tonight, we start a new series. This series is designed to prepare you for whatever happens in the election. Okay. I really thought about this next series a lot. I'm pretty excited. It'll be very biblically based, and it'll be very relevant to what's happening today. Speaking of the election, let's check in. These are signs that I have seen this week. I've seen all of these yard signs this week. And as usual, I've told you this is one of the strangest elections in American history in my experience, at least certainly in my time, in that uh, neither one of the candidates has a very high favorability rating. This week, I usually give you a summary of the polls. Uh, the New York Times national polling average, so it averages all the polls. The polls vary quite a bit, but basically the national polling average. Last week, I'm going to remind you, it was Hillary 45%. Donald 41, and after the, uh, well, I mean, there's been a lot that's happened this week, uh, a lot that's happened. After the debate and the other things that happened, the average is still uh, Hillary 45, Donald 40. So the average didn't move very much, but I will tell you the polls are more volatile. There's a, a one poll for, uh, that I know of that's showing an 11-point gap, but this is the national average. I think most people felt like that the debate was probably one of the more acrimonious in history, just kind of a really hostile, personal debate, and I think that's helping to polarize the country a little bit. So, after seeing that, do Americans think that our country's on the right track? 30% of them still think they're on the right track, and I just want to meet them, 
I don't know where they are. I'm, jo I'm joking. That number stays pretty constant between 29 and 31, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's a representation of people's general feeling about the future. Uh, the Rasmussen poll, by the way, uh, this is, I'm picking one out because last time it had Donald up by one point, 42-41, uh, but it's flipped now. It's 43-39, so it shows a four-point swing, or a, a five-point swing, a four-point deficit. So you can see this race is still uh, kind of moving along, and in some ways with all the volatility, the polls aren't really changing that much, which says some interesting things about the electorate. So that's what's happening there. Uh, I don't know. This could be one of you guys' houses where I saw these. I don't know. But I saw all three of those and thought you would appreciate that a little bit. Well, I want to do one review. Actually, these are our topics. We're on the last one in this session, but just to remind you of the things that we've been discussing, and I hope that it's generated some thought. I hope it's not just generated thought. I hope it's generated your desire to say, what does the Bible say about these things? How do I conform my thinking to God's truth on these issues? I want to talk to you about this. This is one of the most frequent comments and questions that I get throughout this series and in general, is many Christians have the feeling from our culture that, and they would say it, they would express it like this, who am I to impose my values on the rest of the people in the country? And I want to talk to you about that for a minute because I don't, I think that attitude is something the culture would like for us to have. But I want to step back and just say a couple of things to you. First of all, I want to make this observation to you. Every law and every policy enacts someone's values. That's just a truth. doesn't matter what you believe or what your viewpoint, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, independent, uh, libertarian, whatever you are. Every law and every policy enacts someone's values. So my point is, is that Christians are not disadvantaged in the public square. In fact, it is a good thing to take our values and our views into the public square. Miroslav Volf put it this way, and he's far more liberal than I am, by the way, but this is a, we very much agree on this. A vision of human flourishing. In other words, what is the John 10.10? What is Jesus said, I came to give you the full life? Human flourishing and the common good is the main thing Christian faith brings into the public debate, and that's true. If you believe that God's design for humanity leads to human flourishing, in other words, God knows what is good for us. He knows what fulfills our destiny, makes us, however, whatever word you like to use, authentic living. If you believe that that is true, you have an obligation as a Christian to speak into the public square. And so when we pass laws, I would rather see laws passed that reflect God's truth which is good for all people, rather than laws being passed, which, frankly, as we saw in our last, the statistics about the moral revolution in our country, I told you last time and showed you with the numbers, it's been devastating to the children in America. That's why I believe it's incumbent upon us to speak and vote our values into the laws and policies. Now, I know some of you are thinking, your first gut reaction is, oh, no, are we going to make every vice illegal? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about public policy that reflects God's principles and truth. And that's, for example, what we're going to talk about tonight. So let's see as we walk through this issue how we might speak and legislate God's values in a way that leads to human flourishing in our country. Okay, we are going to talk about abortion, euthanasia, and assisted suicide. It's basically what I call the politics of life and death. This is a 
big deal around the world, and it's getting to be a bigger deal in America. Obviously, abortion is already one of the key, it probably is the defining moral issue that differentiates Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. There are other moral issues, but to date, it has probably been the defining issue that separates those two points of view. I want to talk first about the Bible on human life. The Bible has very strong and definite opinions about the value of human life. In fact, Christianity is unique in the extent to which it values human life. Let's look at a few passages. We could talk about a lot of passages, but I want to just ground us in some basic principles. This is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. We talked about this when we talked about God's design for humanity. I want to emphasize a different part. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. Last time we focused on the male and female when we talked about sexuality and gender issues. This time I want to talk about created in the image of God. That idea says that we are not, it's completely contrary to a Darwinian view of the world, a materialistic, a naturalist view of the world, which would say this, you are the product of random chance. There is not much moral way to get the idea that you as an individual are valuable out of that. You can try, but there is no really honest philosophical way to say if you are here as a result of random chance that you matter. And if you look at the history, uh, just look at the 20th century, at some of the atheistic regimes, millions of people killed without a qualm, largely because philosophically there's not an inherent value to human life. Christians and Jews, by the way, share this idea, the Judeo-Christian ethic, is that all human life matters. The Bible values human life, young, old, good-looking, not so good-looking, thank God for me. The Bible values all human life not because of the shell, not because of our utility to society, but because we hold the image of God. We'll get back to that utility to society idea in a minute because it's what underlies the idea of euthanasia. So the Bible values human life because we are all created in God's image. Individuals matter. Here are a couple of other passages you're probably familiar with. This is a beautiful psalm. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. What this is saying is, beyond we're created in God's image, we're created purposefully. Sometimes people want to take the view that, yes, there's a God, and he kicked the universe into motion, and then he went on vacation, and we're just sort of playing it out according to natural laws. The Bible wants to say more about God than that. I do agree that God put order in the universe and it's playing itself out by some of those rules. But what this is saying is God is intentionally involved in the creation and the destiny of human beings. So not only, again, contrary to a Darwinian worldview, you are not just randomly here, you're created in the image of God, you're also not here and good luck, you have no real point to your existence. This is saying, God not only created you specially, he has a purpose in your life. There's a, what's called a teleological element to human existence in Christianity, meaning you're going somewhere. You're not just sort of putzing around here on earth until you die and good luck. 
Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you probably die. Christianity has the idea that you're made with a purpose as well. And then finally, great little passage, the prophet Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, came to Jeremiah, and this is what he said. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You see this idea of intentionality, that you as an individual matter. You'll see this again in the New Testament in uh, several places, but let me just, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians says this beautiful passage. It said, you, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So you see God's plan and his foreknowledge, not just on a cosmic scale, but on an individual scale. So I'll stop there because we could go on forever about that, but I want you to get the sense that the Bible values human life in many dimensions. Your creation, your purpose, your destiny, and it has nothing to do with your rank or how much money you make or how smart you are or how much value you add to society. Everybody matters. That's a fundamental biblical principle. We're going to talk about abortion in just a minute. And abortion, by the way, is not new. Uh, abortion happened throughout human history. In fact, the early church, I mean really early church, like right after the year 100, records instances of the church saying, don't have abortions. In other words, it violates these principles. So I don't want you to think what we're going to talk about is new. This is something that the church has understood for its 2,000 years, and it's something that the church has talked about for that period of time. However, I do want to give you an interesting statistic, and uh, this is very recent. This uh, study just came out, but it's surveying Christians, self-identified Christians in America, and it asks this question, do you believe that abortion is a sin? And so they asked people who uh, were, said they were Christian, who said that they attended church one or two times a month. So it's not a high bar, but it's like, you know, I, I, I go you know, once or twice a month. I'm, I'm somewhat involved in church. 48% strongly agreed with that statement. Abortion is a sin. In other words, it is not God's design for humanity. What's interesting about that statistic is 52% did not strongly agree with that. And so my point is that as we talk about the biblical view of this, sometimes we think, well, this is open and shut. This is what all Christians believe. This is not what everyone who identifies as a Christian. Again, that's, that may be different from having a biblical worldview. And that's why we're talking about this, is 52% did not strongly agree with that statement. So it's a, it's a viable uh, discussion to have for Christians. So let's talk about uh, abortion just a little bit. I want to show you an interesting, interesting chart. I'm going to talk about this in a minute because I want to give you more global statistics first. This shocked me, and I think you'll find it a little bit shocking too. First of all, how many abortions happen in the United States? It reached its peak in, I think, 90, right in the early 90s at about 1.6 million abortions, and it's leveled out relatively, and so now there are just over average about a million plus abortions a year in the United States. I mean, it's a staggering number if you stop and think about it. About a million plus. Since 1973, when Roe versus Wade was decided and the courts decided that abortion was a right and so it must be legal, are you seeing parallels with the last lesson that we talked about, how moral change and social change is happening in America? 
Since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, there have been 58 million abortions in America. This is a colossal issue. It's a big deal in terms of the human impact that it has. What I want to show you about this particular chart, though, is let me tell you what this chart is measuring. I mean, you're smart. I'm sure you've read it, but let's just make sure we understand what this is. It basically says what percentage of all pregnancies are aborted, basically. What it's saying is, is of every 100 pregnancies, how many of them are abortions? It shocked me to realize that in 2011, over 20% of the pregnancies in America were aborted. Actually, the exact number in 2011, I think, is 21.6%. But you can see how the uh, chart goes. And you, so this is since 1973, since Roe v. Wade. It's just interesting to me, and it was a little shocking to me, first of all, saying that there are a million abortions in the United States is, is a shocking number. I mean, that's, a, that's an impact on our society. But to realize that more than 20% of all pregnancies end that way was somehow even more astounding a fact to me about abortion. So those are the numbers. I mean, that's kind of the magnitude of the issue. Of course, Planned Parenthood and some of its procedures, uh, the use of money have been in the news recently, and you've seen some more sensational things happening. But I wanted to put at least the scale of the moral issue that we're talking about onto your radar. I want to talk about this just a little bit. Stanley Hauerwas expresses this really well. When you think about, this goes back to our voting values a little bit. When you think about a Christian ethic, a Christian idea of right and wrong, how, what we're going to bring from the Bible into the public square compared to our culture's ethic, a secular ethic, you're going to get confused by this. Because my contention is this, and, and Howard certainly would agree with this, is that a secular ethic, in other words, the, the basic what's right, what's wrong morally from a non-Christian point of view is not a coherent ethic. It's going to be, you're going to see very inconsistent things happening. We'll talk about it in euthanasia. We'll talk about it right now in abortion. And what he says, for example, one of the defenses of abortion, one of the reasons people promote the idea that uh, abortion on demand is a good idea, is the right of an individual to have control over her own body. That's a fundamental argument. It says a woman should be able to decide what happens to her body. Harawas simply points out, though, that that's interesting when you think about laws against suicide make sense to us in the name of preventing harm. Do you understand what he's saying? If indeed, as an individual, I have the right over my body, then why would you, if I decided that I was going to jump off a building, I figure maybe 40, 50% of you would try to talk me out of it. I'm not sure, and I'd try not to dwell on basically intervene to help someone in that situation to prevent that action. We'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to assisted suicide. And his point is well made, is that if you look at the values that are being voted in from a secular ethic, they're not particularly coherent. He analyzes it correctly. American politics cannot help but appear incoherent as different and contradictory policy alternatives are put forward in the name of freedom. In other words, our secular world loves the idea of freedom but has no idea what it actually is. And you will tend to see really conflicting things happen. So the idea of a cultural ethic versus a Christian ethic. I want to talk about 
how people tend to look at abortion. Abortion slices up into people's viewpoint of really the key question, other than the confusion over the whole idea of what does personal freedom look like and what does it mean? How do you weigh an unborn child versus a mother's rights? How do you weigh that with a father's rights, etc.? In other words, this is a difficult thing for secular ethic to figure out. But aside from that, the way people tend to approach this is when does an unborn child become a human being or a potential human being? There are three points, at, basically, at which people make that mark. The first is at conception. This is typically the view of the church throughout history, is the idea that at conception, based on the scriptures we just looked at, you see basically a human being, a nascent human being. And so conception is one of the points. Second point that people look at is that's a little more pragmatic, a little less principled and a little more pragmatic is at the point of viability. In other words, human embryo is completely dependent upon one individual for a certain period of time and then there comes this point of viability where if that child is born, the child can survive. Now the problem with viability, because it sounds moderately reasonable and you'll meet people that think this, the problem with viability is that it's a constantly moving target. It's also not principled, it's more pragmatic. Does that make sense? In other words, I'll tell, draw the line wherever uh, a, basically that an unborn child can survive outside the womb. That moves but it's also not a principled idea, it's a pragmatic idea. And then the third point would be at birth. The difficulty with saying at birth, on one sense, that sounds reasonable. Okay, that is actually now a human being who's existing outside of the mother's womb. Problem with that is it opens the door to unbelievably horrific practices like partial birth abortion. In other words, things that like, that's a pretty fine line right there is that moment of birth. So I'm going to suggest to you that the most principal point of view here is the idea of conception. It's also the easiest with the less moral argumentation, but those are the three places where people tend to want to, to cut this. Second thing that I'd like to talk about in this context of basically secular ethics versus Christian ethics is the idea of laws and morals. One of the things that I tweeted out this week was the question to you, should morals be placed into law? In other words, should morality be reflected in laws? I'm going to suggest to you that right now in our country, that is what is happening. It just doesn't happen to be Christian morality that is becoming law in our country. It is indeed a morality. It's an incoherent morality, but it's a very uh, aggressive morality in our country, built around certain contradictory but certain principles. For example, in our last lesson, we talked about this, the idea in transgenderism, the idea of you are, should be free to be who you are and express yourself in whatever way you choose to express yourself. That's, in some ways, the way the culture defines freedom. Sexuality, the ethic, this cultural ethic on sexuality is whatever you consent to do is okay. In other words, it's called the ethics of consent. I mean, there are massive problems with that kind of an idea, but that's the general principle. With abortion, the idea is complete 
autonomy over one's own body, at least when it comes to abortion, not when it comes to certain other things. For example, huge social pressure to vaccinate your children. If you do not vaccinate your children, while that's not illegal yet, there's huge ethical and social pressure that you are doing something morally wrong. I only say that to say, do you, do you sense the conflicts here in these values? And that's what you're going to see. Should Christians legislate their morals? In other words, should we just take the New Testament, try to distill all the rules out of it, although it's certainly not intended to be a rule book, but there's certainly guidelines to behavior. Should we legislate all the morality? I'm going to suggest to you no. I'm, not, I'm going to suggest to you that's not what the Bible wants to be, and that's not the way we want to do it. What we want to do is take those principles and clearer ideas of what does human flourishing look like? What does human freedom look like? You see, the Christian ethic about freedom is going to be there is no freedom without discipline. There is no freedom without submission to God. You cannot be free if you cannot discipline yourself. Freedom only comes with limits, and that's why God puts limits on us as human beings. Not because he's trying to control us, not because he's trying to punish us, because you cannot be happy, you cannot flourish without some kind of self-control. So speaking that kind of morality into our laws, I think, is a good thing. And one other thing I think you're going to see a lot of, and unfortunately I think you're going to see a lot more of this, is when you look at laws around abortion, particularly, let's just stick with abortion, there is a big difference between what is permitted and what is mandatory. A big difference in laws and legislation in what is permitted or not permitted and what is coerced. Let me give you a little example first, then I'll give you another, a bigger example that is, I suspect, on its way here. You just watch Europe. And then fast forward two or three years, and you'll see what the pressures, the secular pressures that will come on America. Here's a good example. Roe v. Wade was not coercive. It was permissive. In other words, what that ruling said was, you have a right to do this. You are permitted to have an abortion. What the Hyde Amendment did was it said there won't be any uh, public funding. You won't have to pay for it. Now, in the, one of the party platforms, this is a big deal, to repeal the Hyde Amendment and basically say not only will there be abortion on demand, then you will also pay for it. Now we've moved into a more coercive area. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that you may or may not agree, but you will participate, if, albeit only financially at this point. Let me give you a little more invasive idea of this idea of what's permitted and what's coerced. Doctors, healthcare professionals, Today, it is possible that you cannot say you can't have an abortion because the law says that people can. You are not, however, required as a matter of conscience to do that procedure. When that changes, then that becomes coercive. You understand what I'm saying? When it becomes such that you can't work certain places because of this belief, then it becomes coercive. And that's one of the things I think we need to it's another reason I think Christians must speak into the public square. There will be laws that we don't like, but Christians don't really have a high degree of desire to coerce people into agreeing with the gospel. We want to do public policy that helps people flourish. If you saw the statistics about children from last week, we need public policy that takes care of our children. That's hugely important. Christians don't necessarily have any desire to 
coerce people into doing it. But what you see in our culture right now is a more coercive idea, and I tell you that so that you can watch it. There's a big difference between laws that are permissive and laws that are coercive. So the idea of abortion, you're moving from a permissive environment to a more coercive environment. You're seeing somebody's morality being legislated. It's not a good morality, but it's being legislated, and I think that's why it's important for us to speak into that. I can't talk about this topic without talking about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa has so many things to say about this issue, but she says it in a kind and compassionate way, which is a good reminder. She says this, a great poverty reigns in a country that allows the taking the life of an unborn child, a child created in God's image, created to live and to love. You see what she's saying? Sounds very biblical, doesn't it? It really resonates with the passages we looked at. I think she's right. Abortion destroys the image of God. It's the most terrible plague in our society. There's a certain soul sickness, basically, in a, in a world, in her view, who permits or is part of this kind of practice that it's not God's design for us, it's not good for us. And this I love. She said, if you hear of someone who does not want to have her child, who wants to have an abortion, try to convince her to bring the child to me. I will love that child who is a sign of God's love. That has two interesting implications for us as Christians. First of all, by the way, uh, this was during the uh, administration of Barack Obama that Mother Teresa, I remember seeing this clip, spoke at, I believe it was the National Prayer Breakfast. And it was really interesting because you see this little, I don't know, three-foot-nothing lady, you know, just over the thing, and she's speaking, and everybody's hanging on what she says because I think what she says is godly, you know, these kinds of things. But I remember at one point she turned to our president, and she said, Mr. President, if if you don't want these babies, you give them to me and I will find a place for them. And I thought that was a poignant thing to say. Again, not disrespectful, and I understand there are different points of view on this, but I thought it was a poignant thing to say. And here's the point I want to make. If we Christians want to advocate that all life is precious, then we also have to be willing to step up in our society and be very involved in making adoption easy and being participating in that process. In other words, when people face what I believe oftentimes are just tragic and hard decisions, it's easy enough for us to say, let's legislate that. I think what she's saying, and I agree, is that we also have to step in and say, we wanna be a part of making this right. Make sense? Really good words here about how we view it, but then how do we respond to it? Question? We have several. On the subject of public health policies designed to protect the population and the safety of the people, and I think a couple of examples are vaccinations, and um, do those things necessarily reflect a moral standard? Yes, good question. Uh, vaccinations, seatbelt laws. This is one of my pet peeves, so I'll try not to get on a soapbox here. Seatbelt laws save lives, but they are coercive right? So let's move into a, a more moral realm here, is when is it right to coerce someone's behavior? Well, typically, we would want to say when there is a higher good involved in this situation. And so typically laws around, for example, vaccination for seatbelt involve a higher good that overrides your rights or your freedoms. I don't have an issue with that. That's not a bad way to approach public policy until 
you do something like the Commission on Civil Rights that I talked to you about last time was, and it basically said this, the right of, of non-discrimination as narrowly defined by that commission overrides everybody's right to religious expression. So in general, that's not necessarily a bad approach to public policy, but you can see that it can be taken to an extreme. Everything is fundamentally moral in the sense that you have to answer the question, when and why can we coerce behavior? I'm not saying that moral is wrong in that case. I'm saying, but watch where it can go. So we need to speak about limits around those public policies. Good question. I have several questions about being hypocritical. Uh, a couple of the subjects mentioned are um, the fact that when someone murders a pregnant woman, it's a double homicide, yet abortion is legal. And the other subject is um, abortion is legal. How to, if, if we believe abortion should not be legal, then how do we deal with the death penalty? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just say that reiterates the point about this idea of the inconsistency is that I believe a Christian ethic is very consistent. I think God knows what he wants, and I think the Bible is a good guide for us. And I think it's coherent, I think it's consistent, I think it's God-honoring, and I think it makes people flourish. I think a secular ethic is inherently not consistent. And you see some ridiculous examples of that. So I think that's very true. Death penalty. Death penalty is a little bit different, but I want to tell you, Christians disagree on this a little bit. Have a, I have a sincere disagreement of conscience. I'm not telling you that the Bible says there's always exactly one answer on every issue, but I am telling you the Bible's not this far apart on some of these issues. So, for example, let me just give you the two sides quickly of death penalty. Number one, in one sense, you might be opposed to the death penalty because if killing is indeed not a good thing, whether it's an unborn child or even someone who has done harm to society. We need to protect society from that person, but we do not need to kill them. Okay? That's a reasonable point of view. However, the scripture gives the government, remember Romans chapter 13? It gives it roles and responsibilities in society that are different from an individual Christian. So many Christians will read that passage, and quite reasonably, I'm saying it's not, it's really not an incoherent view to say the government has the power to do that if indeed it serves a useful purpose. So Christians might have a, a slight difference of conscience around that issue, but biblically, I believe that that right exists if it's used legitimately. And this is actually where we have an issue with the death penalty, in my opinion, is does it indeed serve a legitimate government purpose in society? And is it indeed done in a humane way? I would suggest that most of our disagreement is actually around that issue. But that's a fair question, and that's a good question. Um, from a Christian perspective, are there ever exceptions to abortion, times when it would be permissible? Yes, good question. Are there times, uh, from a Christian point of view, when abortion would be acceptable? Here, I'm glad you asked that question, because I want to remind you that in this situation, life is valuable. That would talk about, from a biblical point of view, an unborn child. It also means the mother's life is valuable. Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't a one-sided thing. All of a sudden, if a woman becomes pregnant, she no longer matters. That's not true. And so there are times when one must make a wise judgment in situations like that. 
there's no question in my mind that the Bible contemplates that both mother and unborn child are created in the image of God. There will be some tragic times when decisions would need to be made. So I, I anticipate that the Bible is comfortable with that tragic fact in a fallen world that that does indeed happen. Um, I have several questions about that, and a couple of the examples given are um, rape, incest, sexual crimes, and other occurrences. Yes, we're probably getting a little granular with this, but I'll just tell you in general how Christians ha have approached this issue. In general, in modern times, actually this isn't just modern, this would also be uh, in older times, but fundamentally in our era, Christians as a rule tend to understand that there are situations like that that do indeed make abortion something that can be contemplated. Is that fair enough? Is that typically Christians would contemplate that there are times in a tragic fallen world that there are situations where good things don't happen. In other words, you don't have a choice between what's best. You have a choice between what's right in a fallen world. But yes, typically Christians would contemplate exemptions for those kinds of things. That's what you'll typically see. I mean, I'm sure there are Christians who don't see it that way, Christians who see it a little bit more, but generally you'll see Christians contemplating exemptions for that kind of thing. What do you think are the parallels between not being coercive in implying Christian values, yet we're starting to see coercion with regard to maybe a doctor performing an abortion, a pharmacist prescribing things, a baker making a cake for a wedding that they don't support. It seems like we have a parallel situation going on where we're retracting the coercion on a, from a Christian perspective and implying it on the other side. Yeah, let me table that till I get right to the end because I want to talk about the First Amendment for a reason, uh, for a moment, and I want to talk about why I believe that that's something that Christians should be very interested in. Maybe not the reason you think, but I want talk to you about that. So let me hold on that for a second. Finish up abortion with this. Uh, what then do we do about it? How then do we approach the public square? I think this is a, a very good analysis. The primary implication of the value of human life. In other words, what does the Bible say about life? The primary implication of that is that as we engage the issue of abortion, we ought to advocate for measures that reduce the number of abortions. In other words, we should be about public policy that reduces the number of abortions. That means adoption is easier. That means more of us are adopting. That means more education to that. In other words, we're not necessarily suggesting, uh, these authors are not suggesting, well, let's just pass a law tomorrow and say you can't do it. Under this environment, that's not likely to happen. So what do we do? Do we just sit back and go, we can't have our way? I think this is a responsible approach, is let's do everything that we can. Public policy, personally, as churches, to effectively reduce the number of abortions. The idea is basically impro improving the moral good, improving the flourishing of people's lives. There are often a lot of underlying issues around this. I think poverty is a huge fact driving factor in this. I think there's certain misguided public policies that are a driving factor in this. Let's go attack those things and let's care about the people who are involved. In other words, we have public policy for the purpose of flourishing human lives. And that's the, the last thing I want to talk about on this subject is, as we talk about this at a high level of what's right, what's wrong, 
There is a right and wrong. There is truth in this situation. As we talk about public policy and how should we shape it for the best moral good, let's never forget the individuals that are involved in this. I think by and large, in my experience of the people that I have met, this decision about abortion is excruciating for people. It's hurtful to people. People need compassion and they need healing. And so let's approach all of these things with a little humility, a little compassion, and as much, as much interest in helping to heal the people who are involved in these things as in trying to drive the public policy. Remember our grid, high truth and high compassion. And let's be careful that we don't speak one more than the other because there are real people involved in this, real hurting people. And I think we have a lot to say and a huge healing power of Jesus Christ to people who've been involved in this situation. And then finally, one thing on a societal level, a society that fails to protect and nurture its children will not survive. That's why I think this is an important issue. I don't think it's important because we're arguing with somebody that disagrees. It's important because our society will not survive if we cannot protect and nurture our children. And I'm afraid that many of the women who are involved in these situations are going to lead very difficult lives if we are not there with compassionate open arms and the good news of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. So, yes. I have, I have several questions coming in that um, a lot of the reason that abortion is so prominent is is used as birth control. And so, yes, making adoption accessible is important, but that if we can deal with the birth control issue, we will lower the need for abortion. Is that a Christian perspective? Well, okay. Catholics, just close your ears for a second. Uh, yes, and, and again, I don't want to be a Pollyanna here. I just want to make sure that we don't come across as judgmental without compassion, that we really try to be like Jesus Christ. Speak the truth with love. So, but I also understand that some of the issues here are personal moral failure. In other words, people who do not have a good sense of what's right and wrong. I think then uh, that the idea of Christians being in favor of birth control practices is in general meets the criterion of let's reduce the number of abortions or drugs that are effectively uh, abortions. In other words, Christians have typically, not Catholics, I understand that, I respect that point of view, have typically been in favor of having women have accessibility to uh, basically contraceptives. So I think that that meets this criteria. It may be one of the things we do. I personally would say that long-term, bigger picture, we should talk about the idea of God's design for human sexuality. Part of the reason we have that problem is the moral revolution that says sex is good and as long as you consent, do whatever you want. That's such a flawed idea that we should also speak against that. But in general, yes, I think that meets the criteria of fewer abortions. Good, good question. Well, let's talk for a moment about euthanasia. Let me tell you what euthanasia is. Three kinds of euthanasia, and I just want to talk about one uh, because hopefully we never get to some of the others. First, involuntary euthanasia. Euthanasia, by the way, means a good death. It's dying well, basically in your own time frame. So it's dying, having a good death. In fact, most of the laws that allow euthanasia have good death in them somewhere. So involuntary euthanasia is when somebody else decides when you are going to die. Remember back 
uh, with the Affordable Care Act, they were talking about death panels, deciding who got care, who didn't get care. That's basically involuntary euthanasia. I'm not saying it's happening, but that's an example of why people were like, hey, wait a minute. Someone else is going to decide when I, basically, one way or another, when I die or when I don't die. That's involuntary euthanasia. Non-voluntary euthanasia is when someone else decides for a patient because they're incapable, a family member, someone else. So there are times when you can say this person will die. It's non-voluntary because the patient can't make the decision. And then the third category, which is what's really gaining traction in the world right now, is voluntary euthanasia or assisted suicide. It means I am ready to die and I want it to be legal that I may do so. In other words, I may get a drug, I may get a physician to assist me, some kind of way to kill myself and make that a legal thing to do. Talk about this. Opinions on assisted suicides, I'm just going to talk about that one version of euthanasia, are really a little bit shocking. Think about, look at this. This is uh, when a person... Here's the question that was asked over this time period. When a person has a disease that cannot be cured, living in severe pain, do you think it should basically be legal for a patient to commit suicide if the patient requests it? Now, you should not be shocked at the answers here. Basically, 68% in 2015 said, yes, you should under those circumstances, and only, as you can see, 28% said no. Now, part of this is the way this is worded. And by the way, this whole issue lacks some integrity around this. Look what it says. Have a disease that can't be cured and is living in severe pain and wants to die. So you probably shouldn't be as shocked as it sounds that people are in favor of assisted suicide. Because when you frame it that way, that's the most extreme case that one might be favorable toward it. Make sense? That's not always the way it plays out, however. There's a slippery slope here. You start first, say, yes, if you're in excruciating pain and there's nothing we can do about it, I mean, you take that extreme case, you might say, yes, well, okay. Well, what if you're not in extreme pain, but you just can't get better? You okay with that? What about if it's going to be really expensive to my family and it's going to be a big blow? Maybe it's better for me to go ahead and die. What about if I'm just lonely and I just don't have any hope in life and no desire to keep on living? You see the spectrum of this? And you're typically going to see this trying to be legislated around a worst-case scenario. I'm not dismissing a worst-case scenario, but that's very, very rare. And so you basically, the idea of assisted suicide needs to be thought of in broader, a little bit broader terms than this. I'll talk to you about a specific case. This is one you may remember from 2014. Brittany Maynard uh, made the news, 29-year-old. This is a tragic story. 29-year-old with uh, brain cancer, if I remember correctly basically moved to Oregon because Oregon is one of the five states in the United States that has a death with dignity law, which means assisted suicide is legal. In 2014, and went on record for those who were supporting these ideas and said, I'm going to die on November the 1st. I'm going to have an assisted suicide. In other words, I'm not in pain, but I don't want to go through that, and there's no, there's no cure for what I'm doing. And on uh, certain segments, they heralded her as a hero for making that decision. Now that doesn't measure up, no offense intended to my definition of hero in that situation, but I understand what proponents of this are trying to say. What they're trying to say there is, I don't see any hope or cure in sight, and I suspect there was none, I don't quibble with that, and therefore I wanna have the right to terminate my life now. So this is probably the most famous case. 
in the European Union, this may surprise you a little bit, but 46 of the 50 members of the European Union have assisted suicide laws. In other words, they allow assisted suicide. Switzerland, I believe, I may be getting this wrong, but I don't think so. Switzerland is the only nation that lets you visit there to have assisted suicide. It's kind of called, what is it called? Suicide tourism or something. It is gruesome. Anyway, but 46 of the 50 members of the European Union allow assisted suicide. Currently, five states in America allow, assist, uh, allow assisted suicide. So how do Christians respond to that? The whole idea, again, the biblical principle of the value of human life would tend to speak against this idea. But then I think it's incumbent upon Christians to be very interested in affordable and available end-of-life care, hospice care. That's not, for us, you might think, oh, well, there's hospice all around here. That's not affordable and available to everyone. And we as Christians, if we want to say that life matters and we do not want to take life, then we need to step up and say, then we would like to advocate for public policy that has some generosity in end-of-life planning. Secondly, I do not believe that uh, any Christians typically advocate that people don't have the right to at least deny treatment. In other words, will we coerce someone and say, you may not want to be treated, you may want to die and let nature take its course, but we will not allow it. That then crosses that line to coercion, doesn't it? And so Christians typically support the idea that you may say, I don't want to be treated. I don't want chemotherapy. I don't want this. I, I don't want to extend my life with that quality of life. But tend to stop short of saying, well, then you may take this into your power and, and kill yourself. And I think it's incumbent upon us then to then, well, then let's be there in those situations. Let's take Christ into those situations. And let's help people die with hope. Let's help people die, hopefully with the hope of eternity, but also with the care that makes those end-of-life situations uh, bearable. So let me pause for a question on that before we talk about I have a couple of interesting things on deciding how to vote. Well, I have one question about your graph. What, yes. what do you think caused the dramatic uptick in the last three years on the graph? Uh, this is an opinion. In other words, I don't have any metrics to substantiate this, but my opinion on that is that the reason that, by the way, that you see those states moving fairly quickly, they're pretty predictable states, but the reason you see them moving quickly is I attribute some of that to uh, there being a coordinated media campaign. In other words, the advocates of this have done a good job of framing the issue in a way that sounds palatable and reasonable to a large number of Americans. Even Christians, because again, we've talked to you about some of the statistics, not everyone who identifies with Christian has a biblical worldview. But I think they've done a really good job in framing it. That question framed it. I have no hope of living, I'm in unbearable pain, and I desperately want to uh, kill myself. Well, that's a great way to frame that issue. Does that ever happen? Unbelievably rarely. But it's a great way to frame the issue. I, I think that the proponents of this have done it in a way that the basic fair-minded American will find palatable. And by the way, I think you'll see that on a variety of issues. It's not honest, it lacks integrity, but it can be effective. Well, first thing I want you to know about deciding how to vote is, we, and I, I've said this before, I wanna reiterate this, we do not rely on politics to fulfill our mission. We do not rely on the government to fulfill our mission. 
We are one nation under God. We are not one nation under government. And God help us if we ever become one nation under government. In other words, we do not have to have our way in government to fulfill our mission. We believe God is greater than our government. Politics is a tool, a useful tool, a tool to engage the culture, but it is not our hope of fulfilling our mission. Having said that, I'll tell you, this is a uh, really astute observation that's borne out in the New Testament. The first task of Christian social ethics, in other words, speaking God's truth into the public square, is not to make the world better or more just. That's a mildly controversial statement, but it should not be because the biblical record very much bears this out. Early Christian community very much believed this. They're not here mainly to make the world better. In other words, to legislate it so everything works the way it's supposed to work here. The primary reason was to form a community consistent with our belief that the story of Christ is a truthful account of our existence. Let me translate that a little bit. The number one thing God put us here for was not to set everything right in the world and get all the laws right and make sure every injustice was righted and make sure everything was done right. We are interested in that, but that is not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to live out God's truth in our communities and thereby speak that truth into the world. The church is the most powerful witness into the world. The, when I say church, I mean the community. I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about this community of people living out what it looks like to live like Jesus Christ. That is hugely powerful. Then we go speak those values, that community, into the laws. And sometimes, though, I think it's easy for us to slip into the idea that, well, as Christians, our job is to go make everything right in the world and legislate everything to be right, and all the laws need to go our way. People will flourish if all of our laws reflect God's values, but our primary purpose is to live out the truth of Jesus Christ in this world. So I wanted to remind you of that. We support the U.S. Constitution. This is going to get, now I'm going to get a little more specific, go from philosophical to practical. We support the U.S. Constitution by and large because it embodies God's principles of community, and that's not a coincidence. The founders of this nation were basically infused. You can argue about were they deists, were they Christians, etc. Bottom line, majority of them are Christians, and bottom line, no question, our Constitution is infused with that biblical values. I'm not saying everything in our Constitution perfectly matches the Bible, but our Constitution is infused with those ideas. That's why we support the United States Constitution, not because we're Americans, but because it accurately projects what God thinks, what the community is about. Freedom, etc. Well, let me just give you an example. The First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. This is one example. Respecting an establishment of religion. Christians don't want to make everybody be Christian. That's not how you become Christian. Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for address of grievances. This idea of justice didn't come out of thin air. This comes out of God's plan for humanity. These are godly principles written into human government. And that's why I think our First Amendment is under a great deal of attack in our country. There is a social ethic that finds this to be, these freedoms to be, a hurdle to achieving what that ethic wants to achieve. I think that we as Christians should support our constitutional rights for all Americans, 
not just Christians. And the reason I think we should do that is because to the extent that and where those things embody God's ideas for flourishing humanity. I'm not saying that there aren't other countries in the world that do some good things. I'm just saying America is pretty unique. It's a unique experiment in let's try to do things in ways that acknowledge that there's a God, that all the rights we have come from God, not from a king, not from a Congress, not from a president, not from an agency. It's a unique experiment, and we as Christians, I think, should support those rights because they reflect biblical values in society. So when it comes to voting, I think that we need to vote in a way that's consistent with that. And so what I've been saying to you is prioritize your issues and vote accordingly. You, you will not find a candidate that lines up perfectly. We need to prioritize the issues. What leads to human flourishing? What leads to advancing the kingdom? What makes it easy for us? I would argue the First Amendment's high on that list so that we can freely show and speak God's truth to this world. That's very important to us. So prioritize issues and vote accordingly, and I think voting to protect the constitutional rights of all Americans is a good thing. I think that's a thing that promotes human flourishing, and let's do that in a way. That doesn't mean that every law that gets passed we would agree with, but in general, this Constitution is a pretty good reflection of God's plan for human flourishing. I'm, a, I'm high on America for that reason. I think that God has blessed America in that sense, and I think we should promote that. And I don't think that we should let anybody think that we don't have a voice in the public square. We have a voice for two reasons. We are compelled to speak God's truth into the world with compassion, but let's speak God's truth. And secondly, we know that that truth leads to human flourishing. A society that will not protect and nurture its children will not survive. And a society that will not care for its elderly will end up exploiting other people who are not socially useful. Neither of those things are consistent with Christianity, and that's why I think we need to be speaking to these issues in the, in the public square. Well, now you just have to go decide who to vote for to make that happen. So appreciate you guys uh, figuring that out and vote and make that happen. Well, again, our next series is going to talk about this. We're going to take a little turn. We're going to dive into the scriptures. We're going to go into the book of 2 Timothy. There are some very interesting parallels between what's happening in that letter in the New Testament and what's happening right now. And so we're going to talk about how to thrive as a Christian minority in a secular society. You see, some of the things we've been talking about now are speaking into that culture, but what you've come to realize through this is we're actually not the majority. All these statistics I'm showing you, you realize, wait a minute, biblical ideas are not the majority. We're not used to that. How do we influence the world when we're a minority? And that's what we're going to talk about next time. So I hope to see you in a couple of weeks. God bless you, and I'll see you at the ballot box.